Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Welcome to the Gaithersburg Book Festival. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a member of the Gaithersburg Book Festival Planning Committee. Gaithersburg is a city that proudly supports the arts and humanities. We are pleased to bring you this fabulous event, thanks in part to the generous support of our sponsors and volunteers. When you see them, please say thanks. Gail Foreman is an award-winning, internationally best-selling author and journalist. Her number one New York Times best-selling novel, If I Stay, was adapted into a film. Gail is also the author of several other best-selling novels, including Where She Went, I Was Here, and Leave Me. Her newest book, I Have Lost My Way, is featured here today. I Have Lost My Way is described as an emotionally cathartic story of losing love, finding love, and discovering the person you are meant to be. Kirkus Reviews states, stunning doesn't even begin to say it. We are so thankful that she is here with us today. Please join me in welcoming Gail to our festival, as well as Matthew. Thank you both for being here today. Recorded live at the Gaithersburg Book Festival in historic Gaithersburg, Maryland, this is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 453. I'm your host, Matthew Winner, and today I'm speaking with Gail Foreman, author of I Have Lost My Way. In her newest YA novel, Gail explores the idea that the most important story is the backstory, that all of us come from a place, and that one thing informs the next to take us to where we are today. But none of that has to define who we are. It's a story of losing your way and trying to find it again. It's a story of coming to realize Before we jump into the conversation, here's a quick word from our sponsors. This month, we welcome a new sponsor to the show, the Little Feminist Book Club. Little Feminist wants to help you diversify your child's bookshelf. Each month, they send one to two books featuring characters of underrepresented backgrounds. Little Feminist spends months consulting with a team of educators, librarians, and parents to pick each book and create a suite of hands-on activities to accompany them. Whether it's treasure hunts or DIY musical instruments, the goal of the included activities is to make the stories come alive for both children and families. Raise good humans one children's book at a time by signing up at littlefeminist.com today. The Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Gallery Nucleus, an art gallery and bookstore. On September 9th, from 2 to 5 p.m., Nucleus will be hosting a signing with the artist Scott C. and writer Drew Daywalt to celebrate the books Sleepy the Goodnight Buddy and Adventures in Drawing. Come see Scott's original art from both books and enjoy fun activities. This free event is open to all ages. 
can't make it to the signing, Gallery Nucleus is offering listeners 15% off your next purchase by entering in the promo code WONDER18. Visit gallerynucleus.com to discover more, or click on the Gallery Nucleus banner at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast. And the Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Storyteller Academy. Learn the art of storytelling from published authors, illustrators, and editors at Storyteller Academy. The team shares our mission is to help aspiring storytellers learn the craft of storytelling by sharing our creative process intimately. We believe everyone has a story to tell. Listeners of the Children's Book Podcast are invited to a free mini class. Enroll today at StorytellerAcademy.com slash wonder. Or click on the Storyteller Academy banner at MatthewCWinner.com slash podcast. And now, please welcome my guest, Gail Foreman, author of I Have Lost My Way. Can we invite some of the people who are standing in the rain to come and sit? Because I promise it's not like the front row of school. You're not going to get called on because you're here. Right. We do have some seats up front. Please come in. (laughs) You're getting wet. Sit down. So who is this strange guy standing beside Gail? My name is Matthew Winner. I'm the host of the Children's Book Podcast, which is a a podcast that's been running for about uh, five years now. I interview authors and illustrators and award winners and -and up-and-comers, everyone in between. I've interviewed people in the audience, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it's my honor and privilege to be here with you talking to Gail. I'm an elementary school librarian. I don't often get to live in the world of YA, but when I do, it's quite a treat. And I absolutely apply that to today's situation. So Gail, thank you for being here to talk to me today. Matthew. You delightful to be here. Um, so I read your book. Has anyone else read I Have Lost My Way yet? Have you read it? Oh boy. Like how many tissues did you go through? Quite a few, right? Yeah. Gail, um, so I'm aware from um, knowing your work that, that a lot of your books connect in a universe, right? They're part of the same universe. You have characters that cross, characters that connect. But I wonder if you could please just introduce this book for the people that have not yet read it. And then I want to I talk about this universe. This universe. So this universe is um, contemporary New York, but also with a little bit of magic, but the kind of magic that happens in everyday life. So there's no wizards or anything. And it is about three strangers who on the surface could not seem more different. There's Freya, Haroon, and Nathaniel. Freya is an internet famous pop star who is trying to cross over into sort of general fame and is in the midst of recording her debut album when she loses her voice. Haroon is a closeted Pakistani-American who has just been dumped by James, the love of his life, and is about to sort of commit to a lifelong lie. And then there's Nathaniel, who has arrived in New York that morning from Washington State, having lived a kind of very eccentric upbringing with just his father. And he's there to meet his father with some vague plan. And so these three characters who are completely different, except they have this one thing in common, which they are each in their own way very lost. The book starts with one character tweeting, I have lost my way, one character praying, I have lost my way, and Nathaniel literally in the middle of 42nd saying, I've lost my way, and nobody listens to him. And they collide in Central Park when Freya topples off a bridge onto Nathaniel, concussing him, and Haroon sees it all go down, and the three of them are kind of inextricably, inextricably linked, and they spend this day together, and I think they begin to understand that the way out of their own loss might just be in inhabiting one another's. I found it uh, quite beautiful that, that coming from a place of feeling like you're lost, that it's, 
in a day that we can find ourselves again. And more importantly, it's in our relation to other people that we can find ourselves. Have you been lost before, Gail? So many times. <laughs> I keep thinking like, you know, I'll go through a period of like, just like be feeling completely lost and then I'll get my bearings again. I think I'm over that now. I'm, mm. I'm older. It's never going to happen again. And it happens again in, in different ways. And, and the entire genesis of the book was born out of a feeling loss. I had tried to write a new young adult novel for like three or four years. I think it's, people don't, my last YA novel came out in three years ago, but I wrote it in 2011, so it had been ages. And the movie had come out since then. I thought I had sort of tricked the sophomore slump by having written all these other books. But I, I just felt that everything that I was writing wasn't good enough, and it, it all felt inauthentic. And then the election happened, and everything just felt like it didn't matter. And so I was beginning to think that I couldn't write anymore. And this thing that I had always done, you know, I'd always made up stories to kind of keep myself company and work things out, and I couldn't do it. And I just, the phrase that kept turning over in my head is, I've lost my way. And I used to know how to do this, but I don't. Now I've lost my way. And then that was happening for a few months, me muttering to myself like a crazy person. And then Freya, or a character who would become Freya, was whispering it in my ear too. And she had lost her voice. Was Freya the first character that came to you? Yeah, they arrive in the order they are in the book. So Freya came, yeah. and after Freya it was Haroon. And then, and then Nathaniel. So Freya, I found really interesting that you, you have this girl that is, that has these people in her life that are really trying to shape her to become, to become, to become whatever that means to be popular, to be uh, internet famous, to be bigger than internet famous. Um, and yet you take away that tool to her that, that is the key to becoming famous. And when you walk us back and talk to us more about, about how she lost that, um, that connection to her sister, though, in particular. This is a girl that, um, that there's been a whole sort of market strategy. She uh, came up with her sister. She became uh, YouTube famous with her sister. But then they start, who's the, who's the man at the record company? The, uh, <laughs> the guy that I don't like? I don't Hayden like Booth. Ugh, He's my like favorite him. villain. He was so fun no. to write. I'm glad that I'm glad that Freya gets a chance to hold power over him. Yes. I don't like him. Um, but he has this whole plan of like we're gonna bit by bit take your sister out of your life, out of your public life. Um, and so I wonder with those people in the audience how how tightly we find ourselves bound to our phones and and how you see yourself in that way too, because you really take away Freya's world from her in the course of this day and allow her to realign with the people in her life. And, and not coincidentally, her phone doesn't work for the day. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting because I have a, I'm old enough that I came of age before the internet and before social media, but I have a, a job and a readership that is very engaged in social media, so I'm on it and then I'm not on it, and I kind of have a very love-hate relationship with it, which I think came out in Freya, because this was first the, in, the engine for her becoming known, and I think that's what's so wonderful about social media is the way that it has kind of democratized, to some degree, the channels to get your art out there or in, in politics to get a message out there, for better or for worse. But So that, that, I think, is a positive thing. And Freya also is very, very lonely and disconnected and has found her community there. But it, 
it never transcends that with her. It's, it's only online. It, it doesn't transcend into the real world, so it's all she has, and it's the engine for her popularity. And so the fear of what will happen if she loses it, and I think that anybody who's on social media understands it's this weird thing that happens that isn't really you. It's because of the medium where it's like you post something and then it's like, well, how, how did people like that? And, and you don't even want to have that reaction, but you do. And so for Freya, it really, it really does matter. And so now that she, she's loved for this one thing because she can sing. And if she can't sing, who will love her? And so we, we complicate things by meeting Haroon, a boy who, who has lost the love of his life. He's lost James, the love of his life. And we learn more about what that looks like later in the book. But the, the relationship that you give Haroon to Freya, which is that I know this woman's famous. I know who this is because Freya was something in our relationship. So if I can only get Freya throughout the course of this day, this tragedy, if I can only get Freya to show up, maybe James will return to my life. How did Haroon walk into your story? Oops. Oh, Bang. my goodness. Bam, <laughs> and Gail Farmer loses a tooth at Gaithersburg. <laughs> We're going to be auctioning it off later for charity. <laughs> So Haroon was a big surprise because he arrived so fully formed. And with Freya and Nathaniel, I really had to kind of figure out their dislocation and loss through revision and revision. But Haroon was this like gay Muslim kid who's been living in like straight Jewish me all this time because he was like there immediately. And he was, he knows Freya because James, the boy who dumped him, was obsessed with Freya and felt very protective over Freya because of this one interaction that they had, which is, shows the power of social media. So James, when he comes out to his father, gets kicked out of the house and he sees Freya singing, I forget what song it is, but he feels like, he, he, he writes to her, I don't feel like I'm going to survive. And she's like, I know you will because I did. And from that moment on, like, James is all in. And so he tells Haroon, like, we're going to be friends with her one day. She's going to sing at our wedding, all this stuff. James winds up dumping Haroon because Haroon, among other things, has been deceiving James on multiple levels. And so when Haroon sees Freya there, it's like a sign. Like, there, this means that he's going to get James back. And so for the first part of the book, the three of them are kind of together, but with ulterior motives. Like, it's, it's transactional. They all want something. Well, Freya and... And um, Haroon wants something out of the others. Nathaniel is just sort of going along for the ride. But then as they kind of get deeper into it, it starts to change. And they start to understand that, that it's like they already know each other. They've known each other all their lives. They've only just met today. Haroon um, being closeted, I found so powerful that you, you have this boy who is driven in your story to win the love of his life back. And yet the relationship that he has to his family, he, he has yet to own his queerness. And that becomes a pretty significant plot point. You do a really great job delivering on, uh, on our characters having to confront that, that stimulus that's causing them to feel like they've lost their way. Right. Um, Nathaniel with, Within so much uh, confronting what his father was in his life, and Haroon really confronting his family, who wants to, um, who is arranging a marriage for him, um, and, and, and Freya being able to confront what it means for her to be a social media, a singer, a star. Um, 
I don't know where I was going with that other than just how beautiful I thought it was that that you've made this funny little relationship with Harun that he he wants to own and love his queerness and James and yet the other half of his life is telling him no. Well, all three of these characters, like so many young people, are, are grappling with who they want to be versus who the adults, well-meaning and loving though they might be, want them to be. And in Freya's case, she has a, a stage mother and she has a Machiavellian producer who are really, really shaping her life in like down to like the minutia of who she is like dating, um, at least you know on the internet. And with with Haroon, he's just he's a first first generation Pakistani American, and his parents come from a different world, a more traditional world, and have seen it with his older brothers, you know how how that plays out between the two worlds. And he wants to be he wants to be the good son. He loves his parents. He's just so terrified of what will happen if they find out who he is. And Nathaniel, in a, in a different way, um, really just has this very kind of closed relationship. It's just him and his father. And I think in the beginning, when you start reading about it, Nathaniel too, when he's younger, it's like, oh, it's awesome. I have this dad who will like be like, let's, let's just take off on a road trip. Never mind school, who needs all that? Yeah. Let's sleep all night in the trees. It's only as he gets older and he realizes that his father has kind of isolated the two of them from everybody else, um, and that his father, what his father needs and expects from him, and by the time Nathaniel figures out what's going on, it's it's too late because he's lost so much. A fellowship of two. A fellowship of two. Yeah. yeah. Nathaniel's Frodo father reads. Ones. Yeah, he reads Lord of the Rings to him when he's seven, and they create a fellowship of two, which, as Nathaniel points out, is no fellowship at all. You need more than two people. Yeah. We, we only know, for when you read this book, we only know Nathaniel's father through his voicemail, through that phone connection that, again, you, so beautifully echoes that we have the phone being how James and, and Harun really have connected with Freya and connected with each other. We have the phone being the thing that's driven Freya away from everything at this point, and we have the phone being the last connection Nathaniel has to his dad in, in this way, in the way we find him in uh, at this point in his life. Um, and the phone being the thing that Freya is staring at when she falls off the bridge. When she falls off the bridge, yeah. I, um, man, Nathaniel, that boy. I know. Do you love Nathaniel? I love that boy. I mean. But he, he was concussed. <laughs> he lost his way in a couple different ways. I, 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 I really... I once had an editor tell me that I beat my characters with a misery <laughs> stick. And I feel like if you thought that like poor Adam Wilde had it bad or Willem, Nathaniel is just, I, I really put him through the ringer. But yeah, I just, I, I understood each of these characters are so different from each other and so different from me, but I connected emotionally and so specifically with each one. And with Nathaniel, it was that desperate need for someone to see that it's not all good, because he always is telling people, people are like, everything's good with you, Nate. And he's like, yeah, it's all good. It's not all good. Um, and he just desperately wants somebody to see that and to say, I will take care of you. And so that is that is a part of me that I put into Nathaniel. Um, but yeah, that that poor boy, he's he's had a rough road. I um, I also like I was telling you, living in the world of elementary school librarianship, I don't often get 
uh, the romances that we do between <laughs> Freya and Nathaniel and just wanting to steal time to have with one another. That, that um, to be driven by that passion of wanting to, to, to consume one another's every minute. Matthew, will you go on record and say it's the sexiest softball scene you've ever read? Oh, uh, it is the sexiest softball scene I've ever Thank read. Thank you for yeah. that. All right. Yeah, I can take <laughs> My that. My work is done here. Mike. I can get that. Let's <laughs> share a beer and a soda afterward. That's right. <laughs> I, um, I, I'm glad that as much as you put your characters through the ringer, I'm glad that you also take care of them. I'm sure you know from other books that Gail takes care of her characters, that we know that, um, we know that you love them, too. I do love yeah. them. Um, and these three in particular, they've, they've never had characters who I have felt so deeply connected to. And, and Mia and Adam are like my children. But these guys, I don't know. Um, and it's interesting because I think when you write for children, people scrutinize your work in a different way. And so I often get questions like, you know, why do you write about death so much? Or why do you write about like these bad things happening? As if it's depressing. But it's like, actually, number one, Books all have conflict. That is, that is what drives novels. But number two is, to me, I write these very hopeful books because I think what happens is we all walk around really scared that when, when the bad things happen, and they will happen <laughs> because it's life, we will not be able to cope with it. And so seeing these characters rise to the occasion or find connection and solace in a place they were not expecting it, on a day they were not expecting it, to me, is is utterly hopeful and affirming. And so, yes, I, I do take my characters to some difficult places, but I'm bringing them through, and hopefully the reader through, the other end, which isn't to say I've already seen people pissed off at how this book ends, because like it's not wrapped up, but I definitely bring these characters through. Yeah. The day comes to a close. Yes. You I've gone from 24 hours and if I stay and where she went to just one day, just one year, which either, each had one day portions to this book, which I think takes place in about 12 nine hours, hours no, 10 <laughs> hours. Yeah. I, um, I wonder when, when you're writing what your process looks like. We heard about these characters coming into your life, coming into your head. But what does um, the process of, of outlining a book or just building that world look like for you? The way that you've braided all these stories together. This one was really much more complicated just because of the narrative, and it took me a while to understand. So it's told in present tense, where you have this omniscient narrator, so you are kind of really able to kind of pop back from one to the other. And then there's these flashbacks called the order of loss, and then it's each character um, first person. And so structurally, that was tricky. And the hardest part of this book was sort of figuring out what was happening during the day. In earlier drafts, it felt like the, the sort of most important story was the backstory, which is true because it, it's how each character came to this place of loss. But the present tense is where they go from that place of loss. So once I understood, I think originally I had it like Freya, you know, just character, 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 um, with like a present tense and a flashback, but once I realized that it was this omniscient narrator, it clicked, and it really, it, it, it worked. It wasn't just sort of, it was form follows function, because one of the things is that these three people are so different, and yet so similar, and you as the reader get to sort of have this bird's eye view, and you understand the similarities, and what they're all thinking at any given time, and how connected they already are, even when they first meet. 
So I really enjoyed that particular structure. It just, it was challenging and it took a while to get there and with all things like emotional pacing and this book in particular because it has the three points of view and flashbacks. It's, it's six character arcs. Yeah, I found it powerful and I think you will as well that, that so many times in the uh, change of chapters you also sort of pass off language that a character ends by saying one thing and then those words are picked up by the next person talking. I found that really powerful. Thank you. I, I really visualized it as like a baton passing yeah. in a relay race. So, it, it, again, I think just reiterates the way that, that we can live all these different lives and yet be sort of living the same. Right. Uh, be understanding that we're coming from the same place, the same intention, whether or not we know each other yet or not. Can I ask you what teen life for Gail Foreman was like? Are you, do you write from a place of, of remembering what it was like to be a teen or of, of your observation of your readers now? Where, what, what was teen life for you? I write from adult me, which means that adult me is still in some very essential way a teenager, and I would say it's just because I, <laughs> I, I feel things very strongly and I have never tempered that, and I don't think people really ever stop feeling things strongly I just think it's socially unacceptable to to behave in a certain way which you know hopefully I, I don't have the same hissy fits my 13 year old does but I think um, I look back teen me was already I, I, teen me didn't feel like a teenager I was um, I, I was sort of not a miserable teen but I was sort of not like super ensconced in teen culture I didn't have terrible time in high school I didn't have a wonderful time in high school I had a wonderful time one year of high school because I was an exchange student abroad and that kind of like changed my life and I came back from that being like I'm going traveling and so I traveled for three years after um, before I went to college and so like my teenage years were like adventuring and and sort of sort of racking up all this experience and and being pushing myself to do things that scared me so, yeah, I don't know. Teen, and Teen Me was super, here's Teen Me, super, 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 super into music. So yes. when I was like 11, 12, and 13, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in California, which is like the home of the Valley Girl, like where shopping mall culture was a really big deal. So my friends would go to the shopping mall, but I would go across the street to a record store called Moby Disc, and I would hang out there, and it's exactly like the record store in High Fidelity, and I would hang out there all day long and the guys like adopted me and they <laughs> because I spent all my allowance money on like the rare Eyeless and Gaza import that nobody else wanted. Uh, yeah, I had like the, the hugest record collection and they would always have these contests for like, you know, REM ticket giveaways and I was always winning the contests. So like that music was my original like way out, my way out of like finding a bigger world. And from that came travel. So it's sort of the music that is still in the books, that was Team Me. And music has always been the very, it's an emotional conduit then, it is now. So I think that's why it, that, it repeats in my books, even though I am not a musician. Whenever people ask me if I am, I'm very pleased to have possibly fooled them, but no, I am not. Well, I want to make sure we give you a chance to ask Gail questions, but I want to finish by saying that um, I read your book by, uh, as I do so many YA, by listening to the audio. And uh, in the story, one of the pivotal songs that Freya writes is called White Dress. And I reach the end of the audio, and here's a performance of White Dress. Can you talk to me about getting a performance with, um, um, with Libba Bray, no less, if you are familiar with the name? Um, <laughs> talk to me about what that, that looks like. So with this particular book, there, there's a song, Little White Dress, and we... 
I have I've had lots of songs and made up lyrics in in my books, particularly where she went. I had a ton of them, but I've never felt the urge to turn one into a real song. But this time I I wanted to. So I asked Libba, who's my best friend, if she had time, which she doesn't, to write me a song, which she did. And it turned out to be this amazing earworm of a song. And originally I thought we would record it, like maybe in my husband's basement studio. But then we decided to record it in his recording studio and not have Libba do it, but this 13-year-old girl named Sasha Abner, who's a friend of my daughter's, who has a beautiful voice. So she recorded it. We wound up, um, she performed it at the launch. On the day of the launch, my daughter goes to a performing arts middle school. The entire vocal talent sang it while the dance talent danced to it, while the strings talent played the music. It was amazing. And while I was on tour, I did this thing where we would have people come and sing the song. And then, if, if there weren't enough people, if we didn't have any volunteers, we karaoke it. So it's in the book. So people would open it to the book. I would play it. I have two versions. If you want to hear the song, you go to Gail Foreman Music on SoundCloud, and there's a version with lyrics, and there's a, there's a karaoke version. You can download them both for free. But I would, we would play the version with Sasha singing, and we would all practice it. And then we sang it together. And the first time we did this, I thought it was going to be crazy. Nobody was going to do it. But it was like... So much fun, and if we had more copies of the book here, I would make you guys do it, because it's like the most, you think, oh my God, I'm mortified, no, it's awful, but it was delightful, singing together. That's, well, it's very communal, isn't yes. it? Sharing it's like church together. or something. I want to give you a chance, but first, can we have a round of applause for Gail Foreman? And a round of applause for Matthew Winner. Oh, now you're going to go Oprah in the audience, huh? Well, so I'm going to say, um, we are recording this for the podcast, and so if you are okay with being on the podcast, I'm going to keep you in. So um, if you have a question for Gail about I have lost my way or about life or about teenage Gail or I don't know, uh, if you have a question for her, please uh, raise your hand. I'd love to come to you. Uh, anyone have a question? Here we go. Thank you. I just have a writing question for you. So like you said, a lot of your books have been like a day. Like the whole structure revolves around one day. And as you're doing that as a writer, do you just love that format, that structure, or is it just comfortable for you? Or do you think every single time, like, oh, God, I'm doing it again. I got to do 80,000 words around a day. Because it's just, I love that structure, and it's, you do it so stinking well. Thank you. I, I love it, too, and I, I don't want to be a one-trick pony, and I sort of moved away from it. So I was here and Leave Me or two books that came out that take place over several-month period. I... I, my favorite books are the ones that do interesting things with structure. So whether you're having like timelines, and I, my favorite reading experience is when you start a book and you don't quite know what's going on, but the pieces start to come together. It's very satisfying. I am just really into, I mean, first of all, when you condense a timeline, things just, you ratchet up the, the drama and the tension and the stakes. But it's also, I think it's, I am very interested in these pivot points in life. And I would have to say the most quoted line of any of my books is this line about how anything can happen in just one day, which I, I believe and I don't believe, but I think what happens is you, you have these pivot moments in your life, and sometimes you don't realize until years later that that was a day where things began to change. And so that, to me, going back to like hopeful and empowering, because you can be in this very lost place. You can be in this place where you decide, like I don't like where my life is going on, or I'm not happy about this relationship. And it's that moment of recognition and that moment of like, well, I have the power to do something about this. And I find that, I don't know, I find that a very exhilarating sort of place to write from. So I keep being drawn back to it. 
One, two, three, go. Yay. Yay. Another person on the question. Hi. All right. While you were talking, I Instagrammed your picture on um, Instagram, obviously. And um, a guy in Turkey commented saying that he read all your books and loved him. And I was wondering, do you have any copy, international copies of your books? And if so, which one's your favorite like cover and stuff? This is a really good question I've never had before. And yes, I have international copies of my book. And I often do giveaways because these books all come. And I don't need like six copies of German just one day. I need one. So I'll do, at first I didn't know what to do. And then it turned out readers really like collecting um, that stuff. So I'll send boxes away to, to readers. So I love the international covers. I love the different interpretation. I love how... Like in some of the Slavic countries, my name is Gail Formanova. I know. And I think my favorite copy um, jackets are the Korean ones. They're always just stunningly beautiful pieces of art. Is If I Stay your most translated book? Yeah. I, I assume it also has like movie versions and... Yeah. Right? Yeah. If I Stay, because... I mean, I think it was the most translated even before the movie. And then after, I think it's now been translated into like 40 languages. And this one just came out. And I think there's like 15... So far, that's cool. It's it's crazy. It's it's crazy because I wrote. If I stay in particular, I wrote that. You know, it, people think it's my first book. It's not. It's my third book. It's just the first one anybody paid attention to. And when I wrote it, I did not have an agent. I did not have an editor. I was writing it in a sort of desk shoved in the corner of my family's living room. It was this very solitary thing. I didn't think it was ever going to be published. When I first started writing it, I saved the file as why not, as in this is probably not going anywhere, but why not. And so the surrealness of something that was so specific and local and, and solitary going out into the broader world and resonating in this way, it was, it was and remains so humbling. Very cool. That was a great question. I'm going to get back. Ooh, here I come. This portion is called Don't Get Electrocuted Under the Water. Hi. Hello. Um, you mentioned having a queer character in the book. What were your thoughts behind putting that character in the book in regards to like book sales and reviews? Um, I wasn't concerned about book sales and reviews. Um, I think we've come a long way and, and even if we hadn't, you write the characters you want to write. Um, so no, that, that wasn't a concern at all. Um, you know, I, I understand that there's people who object to gay love stories, but like, then, then don't buy the book, okay? Um, so that, I, that was not my concern. My concern was more having a queer Pakistani Muslim character and that so not being my own experience. Um, doing the thing that you that happens sometimes when you when you write out of your own voice, which is resorting to kind of stereotype and generality. And so I, I worked very hard and had a lot of people help me to make sure that didn't happen. And I hope it did not happen. Did you have sensitivity readers? An you know, armada of them. An armada of them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very good. Yeah. Cool. Do you have any advice for aspiring young writers? Advice for aspiring young writers. All right. I'm going to give you one very specific piece of advice and one kind of philosophical piece. So the f specific piece of advice is to read poetry out loud. When I was growing up at school, we had to memorize so much poetry. So I had to memorize like Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost, Shakespeare, and we would have to recite them in front of the class. And I really I hated it at the time. But there was something I think about speaking poetry out loud, that the cadences and the rhythms of it kind of embedded in my brain. So I really think that that helps. So any kind of poetry, 
any kind of a tree, song lyrics, what have you. And then the second thing is, I think that because we all learn to write, we learn to write at school, and because we all have ideas for a novel, I think we all have many wonderful ideas for a novel, there is the assumption, like, I have a really great idea, I learned to write at school, I'm going to be able to write a novel. The getting the thing from here to here is a huge challenge, and it requires a level, generally, of mastery, like that, that 10,000 hours. So you would not think, say, that you were going to go play clarinet in a philharmonic if you had not played your whole life. There's a level of mastery for that. Same goes for writing. So I think you have to write, you have to write, and you have to write some more. And I think you should not worry about whether or not you have finished a novel by age 18 or published a novel by age 25. I published my first book at 34 and my first novel at 37. Because writing, unlike um, Olympic-level gymnastics, is not something that you like peak out of at 16. So you only get better the more you do it, and you only get better the more life experience you have to draw on. So I think just keep going, and hopefully the love of the craft keeps you going. And, you know... Get your 10,000 hours in. I wonder if any of you in the audience have ever participated in NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, just even for the endurance of trying to write a novel, trying to write those 10,000 words in a month. To have that endurance is something that I think is spoken for. You could just write an hour every day. It's amazing what happens if you write an hour every day. And let it suck. How many bad books do you write to get to a good book? I, so my general thing is that I write one wrong book to get to the right book. So a complete draft of something that I that I just wind up leaving on the hard drive. I, I started and in some, case, some cases finished seven books before I got to I Have Lost My Way. Now a couple of them will eventually, I'll pull them back out and, and fix them up. But I gave up on all of them for various reasons. And some of them, like I one book I wrote a complete draft of that book is over. So for writers of all ages, how do you, how did, how, how did you get to the place that you could um, walk away from a book that you've written and not be so precious over it? You just, I think sometimes you know that, here's the thing, like even when I throw out a book, it does not feel like a waste because number one, I am working toward that level of mastery. Number two, I might take something from that one book and translate it to another book. I, I might find a character or an idea that I want to explore. So if you enjoy the process of writing, I'm going to put enjoy in air quotes because sometimes it's extremely difficult. But it's always interesting because you're thinking, you're thinking about character, and you're thinking about issues you want to think about. If you enjoy that, then even writing a book that at the end of the day you're not going to pursue, it still feels like part of the process. I have time, I think, for two more questions, and then we'll wrap things up. Two more. Anybody have a question you want to ask Gail? Coming to you. So I was wondering, is there a probability that where she went is going to be made into a movie, just like If I Stay? Just like If I Stay, probably not, although not completely out of the question, but there has been lots of discussion about ways to tell that story. So... Were you, I didn't watch it closely enough. Were you in If I Stay? Did you get to be like cameo? I didn't want to be a cameo, oh, okay. but I was because on my last day on the set, you can't really call it a cameo. 
it was a pretty low budget, you know? I think we made that movie for like $11 million and it had some CGI in it, which is expensive. So there was not a lot of ton of, uh, there was not a ton of money in the budget for extras. And there was one scene, it was on my last day on set and it was our first day shooting in the hospital, which like PS was a haunted um, former insane asylum oh. that was now just empty. That that it's Vancouver where they shoot a lot of. Got yeah, a real cheap, real cheap. <laughs> that's where a lot of hospital stuff is shot. You know, <laughs> it's like you get a discount because of all the ghosts. So I was there, and they they said, "Hey, we we could use you. Can you can you be like woman in the waiting room?" So if you there's a scene where Mia's in the in the hospital, or she sees Kim coming to the hospital with her grandparents, and like if you look for an eye blink, there's me reading a New Yorker in the waiting room. <laughs> Perfect. Now we know to watch. Yeah. We know to watch for you. One more question. Going once. Oh. Yeah? Yeah? All right. Hi, volunteers. Thanks, volunteers. Right? Yeah, volunteers. yay, volunteers. Um, I was just wondering, was there ever a point when writing this book that you like thought of giving up on it? Yes. Yes, because it wasn't like, oh, this was the one that came and rescued me. And this is kind of an important thing that goes back to not just advice for writing, but maybe advice for living. Um, when I was losing, losing my confidence, really, on this one, I, I asked for help. I usually am very possessive of my books until I feel like they're at a place where I want to show them to people, and they're usually fairly far along. Um, but in this case, I had a friend who I used to work with who was unemployed, and so I actually paid her to be like to consult with me. And so she she loved these characters so much that when I was ready to give up, she's like, "No." And so we we would have these long conversations, trying to figure out like what had happened to Nathaniel, what had happened to Freya, and so I think back to writing advice, having a critique group or somebody that you can show your work to. Even if you feel like, oh my God, it's awful, it's not ready, it is so incredibly helpful. And applying it to life, like when you are lost, whether it's in writing or in your friendship or what have you in life, really, I think the way to get unlost is by asking someone for help. Final question. I always close the podcast out with this with this question, and so considering our volunteers, considering your readers, uh, Gail, I'll see a library full of children on Monday morning. Is there a question that I, that we, can bring to them from you? It's not about reading, but it's like, what can the grown-ups do to support you guys in like fixing the world? No pressure kids or anything, but like, I've been so inspired by young people and just their engagement in the world and I just want to know like how can we kind of get out of the way and help you be you this is Darshna Kiani children's author and book blogger want to find out the latest South Asian books and children's literature check out www.flowering-minds.com forward slash South Asian kidlet the Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 400 episodes at matthewcwinner.com forward slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals 
and do not reflect ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out with the show? Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. Before we leave, shout out to my patrons, those folks who are supporting the podcast and helping keep the lights on care of our Patreon page. Thank you, Jenny, Sue, Amy, Kate, Darshna, Nicole, Jarrett, Mike, Link, Anitra, Lynn, Cynthia, Doug, Amanda, Ruth, Lara, Judy, Karina, Teresa, Elaine, and others who are coming with me on this journey. You are all welcome to join us. Just visit patreon.com slash Matthew C. Winner and pick the support tier that's right for you. Teamwork makes the dream work, and each of you are helping to provide the tools necessary to make this podcast even greater. Thank you. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.